This episode of The Witch Wave is brought to you by The Spacious Tarot. The Spacious Tarot is more than a deck of cards. It is an energetic realm beckoning you to enter and explore. Many of the deck's illustrations are from a first-person perspective, inviting you into a direct experience of the tarot. And I have seen a deck myself, and it is absolutely immersive and beautiful. The Spacious Tarot deck features earthy, nature-based imagery, as well as more mystical and cosmic elements. Benabel Wen, author of Holistic Tarot and prior Witchwave guest, says, quote, These cards are great pictorial anchors in focused meditation or as starting points in astral journeying and visionary work. Unquote. And in addition to the 78-card tarot deck, there's also an expansion pack, which is available to use with the tarot. This set contains an extra 22 cards, including zodiac signs and elements. Both decks come with guidebooks, making them suitable for beginners or more seasoned tarot readers. And best of all, Witchwave listeners can enjoy 10% off their purchase at thespaciousTarot.com using offer code WITCH. You can also view images and learn more about the Spacious Tarot decks from their Instagram account, which is at the Spacious Tarot. This episode of The Witch Wave is brought to you by Midge Blitz. Midge Blitz is a Jersey City-based one-woman-run shop and is exactly what you'd expect the brainchild of a loud witch from New Jersey to look like. Oh, I am here for a loud witch from New Jersey. You all know this. Catering to all the punks, witches, and queers alike, she designs weird and witchy handmade accessories, as well as screen-printed apparel and totes, all in her home studio that have a general theme of show em who's boss. Her most popular designs include things that say, all of us feminist witches, Hex all fascists and be gay, do witchcraft, to name just a few. Slogans like that pair well with her many accessories, including buttons, hand illustrated brooches, patches, keychains, and her favorite, hoop earrings with eye charms hanging off of them. And you, Lucky Witch Wave listener, can get 15% off at her website, shopmidgeblitz.com, by using offer code WITCHWAVESENTME. That's shop, M as in magic, I-D-G-E-B-L-I-T-Z dot com, and use offer code WITCHWAVESENTME. This episode of The Witch Wave is brought to you by Earth Spirit. Earth Spirit is a tiny, woman-owned and operated business in the Pacific Northwest specializing in handcrafted intention candles, all-natural apothecary products and teas, and unique hand-hammered jewelry. Everything Earth Spirit offers is made by hand in small batches and infused with the magic of earth elements, intention, and love by owner, crafter, and head shop witch, Erin. Earth Spirit combines the elements of the earth with the essence of spirit to create truly unique products. Check them out by visiting Earth Spirit at 
earthelementspirit.com or on social media at earthelementspirit. And Witchwave listeners can enjoy 15% off their purchase with code WITCHWAVE. Find your magic with Earth Spirit. The world is filled with bewitching people, and you might be one too. Welcome to the podcast where art is magic, magic is real, and reality is stranger than dreams. I'm Pam Grossman, and this is The Witch Wave. Hello, and welcome to The Witch Wave. I am just loving this month so far and really feeling that Taurus May vibe of flourishing and luxuriating in the beauty of this season. To that end, I'm very excited to announce a new workshop that I'll be teaching in just a few weeks called Prismatic Magic. This is an online workshop all about rainbow magic. I've been promising this for a long time. If you've been taking any of my other workshops or been part of rituals that I've led. So you will know that this is a long time coming. And this workshop will be exploding with color and imagination and hope and pride and so, so, so many pretty pictures. You can sign up now at pamgrossman.com events, or you can click the link in my Instagram bio at phantasmophile. And yes, this will be recorded if you can't make it live, but truly, truly, it's going to be a joyful and beauteous one, and I cannot wait to share it with you. One other piece of May housekeeping that I want to mention is actually in regard to somebody that many of you know or know of. And that is Lara Antal, my darling friend and assistant slash Vanna Witch. And she is suddenly finding herself in need of surgery. And not only are her medical bills rapidly on the rise, but her main gig is that she is a brilliant freelance illustrator. And she's going to need to not work for a while so she can fully rest and recover. And so if you have the means to support her right now, you can send her some money magic via her buy me a coffee link, which you'll find at the link in her Instagram bio. And she is at Lara Antal there. That's at L-A-R-A-A-N-T-A-L. She will be so grateful and so will I. Now, speaking of the month of May, sometimes the Witch Wave programming stars really align just so, because I've been trying to get today's guest, Untitled Queen, on for a while now, and our schedule's finally synced up, and this episode now just so happens to be coming out this very month, which is also AAPI Heritage Month. And Untitled's father is Filipino, and as part of our chat, she and I talk about how it's felt 
to embody a Filipinex shaman as part of her drag. Now, this wasn't planned, but I'm so thrilled with how the timing has worked out. And this got me thinking about the various magical practices and beings that have existed throughout Asia, some of which we've touched on with prior guests already. But it's been truly fascinating for me to learn that these witch figures and shamans of various Asian regions often occupy the same liminal space of gender that we talk about so frequently in regard to the witch archetype overall. These magical beings are often either female but go against the conventions of femininity, or they are non-binary and fluidly traverse the gender spectrum as part of their spiritual offering and identity. At the moment, I'm actually reading a wonderful book on the mythic figure of the Japanese mountain witch, who is called Yamauba, and sometimes it's spelled or pronounced Yamamba. If you're a fan of the Miyazaki film Spirited Away, you'll note that the character of Yubaba seems to be a kind of blend of Yamauba and the Eastern European forest witch Baba Yaga. But anyhow, the book I'm reading is called Yamamba in Search of the Japanese Mountain Witch. And it's a collection of essays and interviews edited by Rebecca Copeland and Linda C. Ehrlich. And the first essay is by Noriko T. Ryder. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. And in it, she writes the following. Quote, The Yamamba is much less constrained by the tradition, customs, and social norms expected for a woman. From this viewpoint of gender studies, Mizuta Norika says that the Yamamba is gender transcendent, unquote. Now, I love this notion of magic and gender transcendence being interrelated, and we've seen this expressed or portrayed in many, many different regions throughout the world, of course. I'm thinking of the two-spirit beings of indigenous Americans and the Hydra of India, And the way that Untitled Queen speaks about how embodying the Philippinex shaman, also known as the Babylon, is especially moving to me. And since we're talking about Untitled Queen's drag performances in this episode, I must recount this RuPaul quote about drag once again, where she said, quote, It's been the same since the beginning of time when shamans, witch doctors, or court jesters were the drags, which is to remind culture to not take itself seriously, to remind you that you are not your shirt or your religious affiliation. You are an extension of the power that created the whole universe. Unquote. Anyway, it was such a pleasure diving into these topics of gender and magic and performance and drag with Untitled Queen, and I can't wait for you to hear it all. But before we get to that, first, let's check and see what's come through on The Witch Wire. 
Who is it? Witches. Susan writes, Dear Pam, First of all, thank you for your enchanting podcast. I have been a dedicated listener for years now, and every episode is so inspiring and thought-provoking. I am looking for some advice. I am a high school teacher, and as you may already know, teaching is very challenging in recent times. One of the ways that I ground and reset at work is by beautifying my classroom with artwork, plants, photographs, Really, many of my classroom spaces are like small altars. Next year, I have been asked to take on another position at my school that I am very excited about, but that means I will only be teaching part-time, and as a result, I have been asked to move out of my classroom. I have worked so hard over the many years that I have taught at my school to make my classroom a clean, welcoming, light-filled space of inspiration, curiosity, and learning. The idea of moving into a different space that will likely be someone else's space and will be shared is making me feel a sense of sadness and grief. I am wondering if you have any advice about how to approach this situation. Any meditations, spells, mindset shifts, or calming thoughts are welcome. Thank you so much. Hi, Susan. Thank you for the lovely words about the show and for being such a longtime listener. And especially, I want to thank you for the work that you do. Teachers are magical beings, and I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing without the many teachers who inspired and encouraged me along the way. So... What is coming to mind for me in regard to your situation of changing classrooms is the idea that many cultures believe that everything has a spirit. And this practice or system is often referred to as animism, though I realize that that term has its own colonialist contexts. And since it's AAPI Heritage Month, or the month where we celebrate Asians, Asian Americans, and Pacific Islanders, I will mention that pre-colonial Philippinex culture had, or perhaps still has, belief in Anito. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. A-N-I-T-O. Which are nature spirits. And they are sometimes thought of as ancestral spirits. Now, from my very admitted outside perspective, I will say that this reminds me of the ancient Japanese mystical system, Shinto, which believes in kami, K-A-M-I, or spirits that are in every rock, tree, river, etc., and also sometimes related to ancestors. And of course, we see similar beliefs in indigenous cultures throughout the world. Now, I don't know what your ancestral background is, so I am not suggesting that you take on a practice that involves Anito or Kami specifically, but I do believe that our spaces are filled with spirit. And because as witches, we are in relationship with spirit and the spirits, Everywhere and always, you can do some sort of ritual or ceremony to thank the spirits of the classroom that you occupied. 
and to invite them to either join you as you travel to your new space or to ask that they lead you to the new spirits of that new space. And this can be as simple as just saying thank you out loud to the room and objects and spirits of the classroom that you're leaving. Or it can be as elaborate as a more formal ritual where you light candles and recount some of your favorite memories and give thanks to individual objects or moments that you experienced in that space. Perhaps you'll even select a few of the most meaningful objects to bring with you on the next leg of your teaching journey. Magic is portable after all. And when you get to your new space, I am confident that you will be able to bless it and infuse it with all kinds of magic, new and old. Because remember, you are the altar. The arrangements of objects and items that you set up are an extension of your magic and a bridge between you and spirit and your students. So wherever you go, that's where the magic is. And your future students are going to be so lucky to connect with your love and your good intentions and your inspiration and imagination, no matter what space you occupy. I'm sending you lots of blessings and gratitude as you begin your next chapter of Guiding Growing Minds. Now, on to my guest. Untitled Queen is a queer Filipinex and Boricua artist based on the stolen land of Lenape Hoking, otherwise known as Brooklyn. She is a storyteller creating deeply emotional and visceral performances while exploring what it means to be a queer millennial working artist in New York. Through an interplay of drag, installation, and drawing, her work explores the growing pains and joys of queer adolescence into adulthood while challenging and dissolving colonial notions of culture and belonging. Untitled Queen is the recipient of the Brooklyn Nightlife Award for Drag Queen of the Year in 2015. She is a resident performer for RuPaul's Drag Race Season 9 winner Sasha Velour's Nightgowns show, which is how I first encountered her magic. And she has exhibited her artwork at such spaces as Kishka Gallery, the Elizabeth Foundation for the Arts, the University of Connecticut, The Kitchen, Boston Center for the Arts, and the Bureau of General Services Queer Division. She is also the creator and editor of the Queer Creatives Community Directory, which is a free open resource Google Sheet that features over 1,400 queer artists and freelancers from across the world. In 2020, she created and produced Untitled America, which was the first digital drag show to feature 51 drag artists of color, each representing one state in the United States, as well as Untitled World, which was the first global digital drag show featuring 47 drag artists, each representing one country. Her monthly untitled show, Drag Series, can be seen at Brooklyn's queer bar and venue, Come On Everybody, and her recently announced drag competition called Untitled Art Star will be happening there from June through October, so get those tickets! 
Untitled Queen joined me from her home in Brooklyn via Zoom. Untitled Queen, welcome to The Witch Wave. Oh my gosh, thank you for having me. I am so overjoyed to have you. As I just told you before we started recording, I've actually been your fan for a long time. I saw you perform for the first time at Sasha Velour's Nightgown show. I think that was in like 2017. I went because I'm a huge Sasha Velour fan, but then I just fell head over heels in love with you and have been following you ever since. So this is a true, true thrill for me. Thank you for doing this. Oh my God, thank you. Very, very kind. Oh, you came to see it at Sawdust? Yep, National Sawdust. You got it. I fell in love with a few of the other queens, so not trying to pit anyone against each other, but you just stole my heart that night. So yes, big, big fan over here. So one of the things that I'm so interested in is the relationship between drag and magic. And Untitled, you are perhaps not super familiar with this show, but we're friends with Jinx Monsoon. She's been on the show a couple times in all her witchy self. And Louisiana Purchase has been on the show before. Oh, I love Louisiana. Oh, <laughs> me too. I love Jinx too. I just don't know her personally, but Louisiana I know very well. I yes. love, love, love her. Ah, so do I. Swoon, swoon, swoon. So you are someone who definitely, when I look at your drag, there are sometimes aspects of witchery and bewitchment and shamanism that you bring in. And I want to talk about that more specifically, but I just wanted to invite you more broadly to talk about your relationship to magic and spirituality through the lens of your drag. Oh, sure. Okay, let's see. <laughs> I think that I've always loved the concept idea of magic growing up and also as it relates to witches. I think a lot of queer folks really identify with magic, people that wield magic. And I think specifically like witches, maybe it's different for different generations, but I think in particular, like it's usually a sign of these characters you can identify that have like repressed magic or magic that's on the outskirts or on the outside that they use to empower themselves, that they kind of turn the script and create worlds, also like alter their reality and their paths. And I think I've always been really connected to that form, that kind of idea of magic. Also, drag is just another form of my artwork. It's just a, a medium within my artwork. To me, there's really no separation between my drag life and my art life. They're one and the same. My art is a way of like storytelling and creating an immersive space for people to kind of be invited into. And I feel like that's kind of the magic that I try to enact through drag and through the work that I do. Yes. And I'm very familiar with your installations, your sculptures, your drawing, your graphic design. If I'm not mistaken, I think you do all of the artwork that promotes the shows that you put on too. Am I correct about that? Yes. The, for my untitled shows, I do all the artwork for that. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Multifaceted queen. So one of the phrases that you use on your website, you write about your work, the language of this lived experience is an ever-growing folklore of magic wands, my mother's flower garden, Filipinx vampires, and sad rainbow witches. 
And that paints such a beautiful picture of your aesthetics and a lot of the different threads that you're pulling on when you are world building as a drag queen and as an artist in general. And I just wanted to invite you to expand upon that a little bit and how all of this different magic infuses into your work. Sure. I've always been really inspired by just everything. I'm super curious. A lot of the subject of my work, I think it's about being a working artist here in New York and being a queer artist here. And I feel like I find inspiration everywhere, but I'm you know, a huge fan of very DIY craft oriented things. So I think about my parents and how I grew up in my family. And my father is an immigrant from the Philippines. He came here when he was 20. My mom and my father are very young parents and they didn't really have any precedents or examples for the kind of things that they created. So they didn't really have like presence of having going for higher education or going to college. And they both did that. And then they also created it for, I'm a youngest of five and, you know, really just making it on their own. My father coming, you know, to a whole new country on his own and learning English and doing all this stuff. And I think I'm really inspired by this whole self-made DIY thing. I think that carries through all of my work, but specifically drag is a complete mirrored parallel construction of that because it's what makes it so exciting is that it's a creation and deconstruction multiple times, all the time, a really fluid sense of being and making. And I think I'm really inspired by that, not only conceptually, but also in the kind of material approach I have to things that you can really get at like dollar stores or thrifting and crafting and all these things really speak to me in the way that they're really easily accessed and I can really make on the fly. And to me, it's not about this kind of like polished thing that you don't understand how it's made. I'm very open about my process and that's really excites me, like the kind of continual creation and uncreation. And that part of it, I think really relates to the kind of lexicon that I was talking about, all these different objects and things. Magic wands is something that I <laughs> grew up with that I, you know, was very into, quote unquote, pretend, really uh, creative, wild kid. I still am. Yes. Know, nothing has changed. For me, like, you know, I'm always, <laughs> I'm consistently fascinated by the same kind of questions about like what it means to create and how to tell a story, how to speak through art. I mean, I feel like art is really my language is the first language. So I just speak through it to try and, you know, tell stories or talk about how I feel and the kind of things I'm really interested in and yes. been making them and things like that. Absolutely. And the word that kept coming up for me while you were describing the making and then the sort of breaking down and remaking is the word shapeshifter. I feel like that is so much of what art is. Drag performers are shapeshifters, or I'll put this a better way alchemists, you know, people who can transform the world using these base materials and then refining them into gold, right? Sure, sure, yes. So let's talk a little bit more about your upbringing, if you don't mind. I didn't realize you were the youngest of five, and yes. I can completely relate to being a hyper imaginative, magical, creative kid. So am I correct that you grew up in New York City? Yes, I grew up on Governor's Island. What? I don't yes. think I knew people actually could grow up on Governor's Island. Does everybody say that to you? Yes, it's my fun fact. Typically, I'm the pers person that someone meets that's like ever actually grew up there. But my father came to this country through the Coast Guard and Governor's Island used to be a Coast Guard base for decades. 
So I was born in New York and grew up there until I was 12. In 1996, they shut down that base. Mm -hmm. And my father had finished his service. And then we moved. But yeah, originally I grew up here. So interesting because, of course, my association with Governor's Island and for listeners who aren't familiar with it, it's kind of become a destination for art and installations and all kinds of different community projects. And so when you first mentioned it, I pictured you growing up on this art colony. But of course, that's not what it originally was. Have you done any artwork on Governor's Island or performances since then? No, no. You know what? Like for many years, I couldn't go back there. I had a really wonderful childhood. And that place was also just a really magical place because everybody knew each other. It was very safe. I always think about like what 1950s movies, this kind of idyllic kind of sense was very much like that childhood there. Lots of different nationalities and different races and people. There were a lot of Filipinos that were living there. So I grew up with a really diverse setup. And then also we were just a boat ride away from lower Manhattan. And it was a really wonderful, formative place to live. And I only went back maybe two years ago. So it'd been like 20 something years since Mm -hmm. I'd been there. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it was a very hard place to go back to because I had such strong, powerful memories there. And I really didn't think I could take it emotionally. But then my parents came to visit my eldest sister and who lives in Westchester. So she was like, why don't we all go? So finally went and it wasn't terrible. It was actually lovely, but it was very different because much of the places that I grew up with don't exist anymore there because sure. it's not a place that they live, but even where I grew up, they don't, they don't have that building there anymore. Or my mm. school. Or- oh yeah. I could see how that's kind of bittersweet. And am I correct that your mother is originally from Puerto Rico? Is that right? My mother's parents are from Puerto Rico. I see. Thank you. Thank you. She did grow up in the States. I was wondering, you know, this mix of different cultures, did you have any sense of a spiritual foundation or religion when you were a kid? You know, it's kind of funny. Whatever religion made you do a communion, I did that. And then like (laughs) when we moved to Connecticut, my parents just completely dropped off and they didn't care. And then I was like, I don't care either. So it's like my sister and I, the next eldest to me, we both moved to Connecticut after living in New York because much of my mother's family lived there. We just stopped doing it all together. But yes, I'm not a religious. I'm actually, I'm not a spiritual person either. But Let, let me just interject. It was interesting earlier when you said... I'm blessed. And you were like, well, blessed isn't the right word. I'm fortunate. It almost felt like, yeah, maybe the spiritual language is not the right vocabulary for you, maybe. No, not for me. Not even maybe, for sure. I'm definitely not a religious person. And spiritual, like, to me, I don't have a relationship to that. But it's interesting because I think many people have described their experience of my work as a kind of a spiritual connection to that, which, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, also, I can't control how other people experience the work or, you know, how they frame me. But for myself, a lot of my work now, too, is really unlearning and mining about colonialism and decolonialism. And, you know, my parent countries are victims of white Euro religious Christianity colonialism. So I'm like very, very divorced from ties to anything having to do with colonial religion. Yeah, that makes sense. And when I think about some of the shapes that you've shifted into as a performer, 
you know, one of the more obvious like witchy ones is when you embodied the protagonist of one of my favorite Japanese animated films, Belladonna of Sadness. Yes. I will say to folks listening, you've probably heard me mention this before. I think I wrote about it in my book, Waking the Witch. It's very like there's some sexual violence and, you know, intense adult imagery. So just be warned before you watch it. But it's super psychedelic and super beautiful and super magical. And I just love your performance of that. Oh, thank you. I mean, that movie is so fantastic and lush and beautiful and harsh. And I actually only watched that movie for the first time, maybe like during the pandemic. So, you know, maybe two years ago. And I've known images from it, but I never actually like sat down to watch the whole thing. And that movie is so striking. And so when I did the show, it was like one of my favorites. You know, again, this is just like such a rich topic, I think, for queer folks and drag queens. And and that one was actually really hard to narrow down. That's like one of those ones where I'm like, oh, my God, there's a million witches I wish I could have done. (laughs) Yes. You know, I could do the witch show like multiple, multiple times. But when I thought about her, I thought that one would have been really amazing because I wanted to share a minute and a half from the actual film. And I thought that was really wonderful to show those images. It's a beautiful watercolory drawing and animation. One of my favorite parts is sharing images or things or my processes that people had never seen it or never even heard of it. it came up to me later. They were like, oh, I was never really interested in an anime or animated movie, but they saw what that looked like and yes. they did in like, you know, entering it. And I'm like, yeah, it's a stunning piece of work. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then another, I will call it witch adjacent figure that you've embodied on images that I saw in your Instagram feed is of a Filipinex shaman. Oh, yes. And I suppose one of the reasons that I've been asking about spirituality and your relationship to it is because while I understand that any kind of Christian and colonialist spirituality might make you really, really bristle, seeing you embody this more like shamanic archetype from your family's ancestry, I found really, really moving. And so I just wanted to ask you what it was like to embody this figure and perhaps to share a little bit more about the Philippinex shaman. Sure. I'm connected to, again, like my parents and culture, and I'm really interested in these different archetypes and characters you know i do some things inspired again by like mythic creatures so i'm really interested in the different folklore and one is this mananangal which is like a filipino vampire that's really specific to their lore that i'm really obsessed with and i just find these stories empowering because i can sort of insert myself and live out these various stories through these characters you know whether they be fictional or not I came across these shamans, there's various names for them, Asog, A-S-O-G, or Babylon is another name for them. And what has really interested me in this was, you know, I basically was doing research about pre-colonial Philippines. And these shamans that they had, which was amazing, were, you can extrapolate that these were queer people, you know, basically particular shamans were really highly respected members of the community. And this is also pretty common across most indigenous cultures anywhere that usually like when a certain colonist came they basically tried to zero in on what the hierarchy 
of the culture was and then tried to basically desecrate like destroy all their kind of religion and then substitute theirs and both puerto rico and the philippines are you know colonized by spanish crown Mm -hmm. so what's interesting is that the accounts that i was reading from are only recorded by spaniards because they're just looking and you know researching and trying ways to figure out what is going on but they characterize these particular shamans mostly women or women identified people were these shamans but then there were these other ones that they noticed that what they called feminized men which we might think of today as probably trans people or queer people sure and this is also common across other indigenous cultures binary thinking and binary gender is definitely a colonial import and structure and so researching more of this was really exciting to be like oh okay what is this relationship what kind of stories do they have and these shamans what i found in my research was that their connection to femininity was seen as a higher connection to the spirit world and they were seen as a bridge between the spirit world and the human world and basically you know, which I really loved. And there were these various accounts that these people through the various stages of colonialism also led or were a part of big uprisings and guerrilla uprisings. And I did a performance or two performances for God Complex's show called Ritual, or it's called Absolutely. And the theme was Ritual. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to embody this for myself as basically like a continuation of decolonial. Like I really, you know, I think of drag as a decolonial artwork because it dissembles given gender modes and gender structures. And that's one part of its, you know, decolonial um, action. And so for me, I just completely fascinated and really love these stories. And, and one in particular that I drew inspiration for in this performance that I did was this one shaman asked the nature spirits for rain so that it could disorient the colonists because it was not their territory. They knew the land better in the mountains and rain did come for this particular uprising. Mm. And so in my number, I did this Radiohead song, High and Dry, and asked for water in the end, the climax is water. We had water come down on me. Oh, come but, on. Oh, I yeah, wish I yeah. saw that. How beautiful. I'm waiting for like the full video, but it was a really, really awesome moment that I got to basically be inspired because the theme was ritual. So I was looking at these various shamans that also like kind of brought me to that. And a lot of the clothing, I was also really inspired doing research from indigenous tribes uh, from Luzon, which is the area that central Luzon is the area that my father is from. Oh, how gorgeous. I'm going to pause you there for just a moment. On that note, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. I am thrilled to tell you about They Friend Candles, which is a queer, non-binary, trans, witchcrafting candle venture. All They Friend Candles are crafted and enchanted by queer, non-binary, transgender, Kirkian witch, Rune Rainwater. Ah, so beautiful. They Friend seeks to be in a non-extractive relationship with all crafting materials. Their candles are made with sustainable materials, including beeswax, hemp wicks, and homegrown dittany of Crete. They never use synthetics and instead craft their candles with food-grade sustainable dyes like pomegranate powder. And their packaging is eco-friendly. Boxes are reusable and biodegradable, and all candles are wrapped in reusable heavy paper. 
And I just love the sound of they friend candles, such as their best-selling candle, Circe's Lion, which is enchanted specifically for queer protection. Other candles include Stag and Hecate's Owl, both of which are enchanted to assist with divination. There's Witch Broom, which is enchanted for spirit flight and powerful cleansing, and Create, which is enchanted to bring pleasure to any act of creativity. Ooh, I love the sound of that. They Friend also follows the methods of astrology and astroherbology and is pleased to offer astrological candles made with traditional planetary timings. And all They Friend candles are enchanted using Kirkian spellwork, and you know I'm a Circe fan. They also offer custom-crafted candles for you based on a tarot reading that you'll get as part of your experience, which is perfect for any of those moments in your life when you're feeling called for some more specific support. So check them out now at theyfriendcandles.com. That's T-H-E-Y friendcandles.com or on Etsy at they friend candles or on instagram at you guessed it they friend candles and as a bonus incentive just for you you can use offer code witchwave for 13 percent off your order that's offer code witchwave for 13 percent off your order from they friend candles the witchwave is sponsored by better help Look, I know that self-care has become such a trendy phrase, but it's really just about how much time you spend on yourself in a given week versus how much time you spend on other people. It's a challenge for a lot of us, I would even say for most of us, to balance this. It certainly is for me at times. It is so easy to get caught up in what everybody else needs from you, whether it's your family, your job, your community, your cats, and never take a moment to think about what you need from yourself. But when we make sure to also spend time on self-care, whether that's through rest or ritual or introspection or what have you, it can help us refill our well and bring us more well-being. Because when we spend all of our time giving, it can leave us feeling stretched thin and burnt out, and I know you know what I'm talking about. But self-care is replenishing, and therapy is self-care. It can give you the tools you need to find more balance in your life so you can keep supporting others without leaving yourself behind. For me, along with witchcraft, therapy has been a huge aspect of my self-care. I have been in therapy for decades, and I truly believe that it's something every human being can benefit from. Therapy has helped me feel less overwhelmed and more in tune with who I am and what I need so that I can then be a more present, generative, and generous person for the people in my life that I care about, which includes my listeners like you. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and is designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. All you have to do to get started is fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge to make sure that you find somebody who's the right match for you and your self-care. 
Find more balance with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash WitchWave today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp.com slash WitchWave. Would you like even more WitchWave? Do you wish you could hear from me and my other bewitching guests on a weekly basis? Then come join us on Patreon, where you'll get bi-weekly bonus WitchWave Plus episodes, ad-free WitchWave episodes, and detailed show notes for all. Rewards for some tiers also include magical merch and contests where you can win witchly prizes each month, as well as early heads up about my workshops before they sell out. And all backers get access to our exclusive digital coven, where I lead monthly online rituals and where you can connect to a community of other wonderful witch wave witches around the world. So head on over to patreon.com slash witchwave and sign up. It's a fabulous way to get more magic in your life and to support the show. Thank you so much. Welcome back to the Witch Wave. Today I'm speaking with Untitled Queen. So we were talking about shamanism. We were talking about your performance as this Philippinex shaman and I'm very enchanted by some of the things that you were bringing up in our last segment, especially around notions of gender and around queer people or people who transcend the binary, having this deified place in culture, because you're absolutely right. I studied anthropology as an undergrad, and so I became familiar with some of these concepts, you know, 20 plus years ago, and I was so truly enchanted by it. And I would love for you to expand a little bit more on the idea of a queer person or a non-binary person as perhaps, you know, having access to magic in ways that straight people maybe don't as much or in the same way. Oh, <laughs> what I, as far as the things about these particular shamans, Filipino shamans, that really interests me is that you know they could marry whoever they wanted it could also be whatever gender and it wasn't a frowned upon so like i wasn't trying to envision myself in that place oh wow like this could have been me you know hundreds and hundreds of years ago this could have been my place in this society in this in this tribe and like how kind of wonderful could that be without having this resistance you know growing up here the gender Binaries here are so strong, and particularly with the anti-trans, anti-drag, anti-queer legislation that's happening here. Yes. You know, this is a colonial occupied government. The United States is a colonial government. So I find that very interesting as far as thinking about the past, about magic. But I think about queer people here under a colonial government in America. I think that we persevere because we've had so much resistance. And when I moved to Connecticut, when I was 12 from New York, you know, it was a real culture shock or almost like culture backwards because I lived in a very small white town, mm -hmm. not very diverse. And I was like one of two out people at the time. Yes. Yes. Growing up. And, you know, it was super hateful and I hated it. <laughs> and people Hateful in, in all directions. In all directions. But it really made me who I am. So I really 
I wouldn't actually trade it for anything else personally. And I think that a lot of queer people really identify, I think, with having to survive and finding that thing inside of you that helps you get through, whether you have the support system or not. I was lucky. My family was a really great support system, but my art and my was my survival tool. That was the thing that helped me get through. I mean, along with, you know, family and friends, but I think the language of a lot of drag, I think is a, a magic of reversing this repression. You finally like able to create all the things that have been brewing inside of you for so, so long. That's why it's this kind of like life giving art form. Yeah. I think that's, that's the kind of magic, but I don't think necessarily it's only particular to queer people, but I think, you know, when you have things that are really resistant, it's like, what can you turn into, turn into yourself or what can you connect with that helps you get through or, you know, in touch with that magic? Ah, beautifully said. Now, I recently attended your show called Untitled Flowers. And for listeners who are not yet familiar with these untitled shows, it seems to me that every show has its own theme. And then the different performers that you invite embody this theme through costume, through the songs that they curate. I know your frequent collaborator, Jess Ramsey, often is playing music that's on theme. And my experience of this show, and let let me interject and say, I want to be very careful not to impose my framework on you too much because, look, I'm a witch. This show celebrates the archetype of the witch and the practice of witchcraft, but that's a very elastic term. So I'll just say my experience subjectively of this show was that it was deeply magical, especially because so much of at least the style of witchcraft that I practice, which has, you know, a lot of roots in paganism. I was also raised Jewish. And as listeners know, connecting to my Jewish ancestry and Jewish folk magic has been a big part of my practice, too. But celebrating the seasons, celebrating nature and the cycles of the year is a big part of witchcraft. And so after a bleak winter, to come to this space and to see this absolutely prismatic celebration of springtime and flowers and blossoming. And it was erotic and funny and moving and at times grotesque. Like I had, you know, a pretty ecstatic experience. And I felt, you know, a lot of healing and positivity in that room. And so I just wanted to ask you about your intention for your untitled shows. Sure. Well, first of all, thank you. I'm so glad that you had such a wonderful experience with like all different kinds of reactions and artists. So this is my favorite thing to do. And I love art making and love doing drag. And this particular show is just one of my favorite things to do. So I call them Untitled Shows. And uh, Jess Ramsey is my collaborator, one of my best friends. We went to art school together and we put these on together. As you mentioned, each time there's a new theme. So it's always untitled and then whatever the theme is. And the themes are usually something really broad so that can be interpreted any million different ways. And it's really a space for just people to really express what they love about their 
drag or their artwork and what they want to say. And it doesn't have to be very specific or literal to the theme. So that's what I always go in with when I tell folks that are going to be part of the cast. And it's a really place for them to experiment or play or revisit something they love. It's really about really doing something that showcases them. And I feel like most drag artists do, but sometimes when we're performing, we're either in someone else's show or we're like kind of fitting to print something we think will work for something else. And so I think it's nice to have a space where you just kind of get to do whatever you want. And that's the kind of space I really try to create. You know, and Jess and I talk a lot about this, you know, because we went to grad school for art and these shows are really a way to combine like the best parts of the art world and stuff that we learned and like take out a lot of the bad stuff mm. and bring in the best stuff of nightlife. I'm an 11 year old drag queen now. So, but before then I didn't know really anything about nightlife or drag at all, or in the way that I know it now, at least but we graduated in 2009 and I started doing drag in 2012. And when I entered this community, it really changed my whole life because I found that there was a whole other way of engaging with artistic practices and like with a community and the radical political element of gathering within nightlife spaces. So we do like bring the nice parts about art, which is like the making and the creativity and the collaboration, and then bring that in sort of the kind of more Maybe now it's not so unexpected, but within the sort of dive bar, that's kind of our ploy when we do the space. So we kind of challenge both spaces about like what can be here, what can be done and kind of melt them together to create a really immersive place to invite people to experience some of the best drag in the world. Yes. And I think that's one of the reasons I'm so attracted to your style is such a, a boring word for what you do, but style of drag, your approach to drag, and a lot of the artists that you are then curating and collaborating with because, listen, I am an admitted big RuPaul's Drag Race fan, and the queens that I'm always attracted to are like Sasha Velour and Willow Pill and Jinx, and I was so overjoyed for Sasha Colby. Yes. <laughs> and I believe she's a friend of yours. Is that right? Yes. Yes. We're very good friends. We met through Nightgowns. So she's part of the main cast of Nightgowns. That's how we became friends. So I've known her for probably whenever she became a main cast member, which was maybe like five years ago. How fabulous. All right. We're going to have to talk about Sasha in a moment because yes, I'm so, so thrilled for her. But those are the kinds of queens. I know there's some comedy in there, but also it's a lot about art and pulling on threads from a little bit more avant-garde, inventive, fantasy, hyper-imaginative, hyper-smart and intellectual at times. And it can still be silly and fun and goofy, but that's the kind of queen that I love. And so you and your work has opened me and introduced me to a lot of other performers who are just absolutely mind-blowing. And one of the things that I was so moved by during this show was how inclusive it is, not only from a curatorial perspective, who was on stage, but you, for example, had people doing sign language on the side of the stage, you know, to make sure that people who are hard of hearing or who are deaf could still understand the lyrics of the songs that were playing. And I just wanted to hear more about that approach of broad, radical inclusivity that you bring to your performances? Sure. I think it's a queer thing, period. We are constantly expanding, you know, our language, our other things that we've been given 
are not enough. So that's why the fluidity and the way we begin to understand and describe ourselves grows and changes. And I think that it's imperative for us to continue to challenge what our idea of community is and what that bubble is and to open it more. And like, I think these efforts are another part of that and, you know, it'll never be done. I think there's always more that can be done to, you know, include more people because really it's like everyone should be able to enjoy art and also to be inspired to feel that they can do it too. I feel like that's a big part of my love for sharing process and like sharing how to do things and also bringing people together, but specifically about the accessibility for deaf and hard of hearing. I was in a show in Rochester, I don't know, maybe seven years ago, something like that by uh, an amazing drag artist named Wednesday Westwood. Doesn't do drag anymore, really. But she had a show up there. She lived up there and brought me up. And when I went there, I did not know this. They had a very huge deaf and hard of hearing community there because there's a big school there for interpreting. Mm. So all of their shows were interpreted. In the space, I had never seen so many deaf or hard of hearing people within their community like their show was packed full of them and i got to meet so many of them and see all the signing and it really blew my mind and this was a moment where i was like wow not only is this amazing but then i was like wow we are so behind yes and this is across the board in many places and not just for deaf part of hearing but definitely accessibility as it pertains to disabled folks and i always just think like in New York, you know, we think we're so, you know, ahead of the game, but like we're very, very behind. And I think that show inspired me and I really began to learn a lot more about deaf culture. And then I met someone that became my friend and a teacher. His name is Gregor Lopez. And I learned a lot of, through him about deaf culture. And then recently an amazing drag artist named Antifa. Yes. She just is a recent transplant from Portland and she's a professional interpreter and we were already kind of friends online before but when she moved here we kind of linked up and I had tried to get interpreters for my shows before and had some issues with timing some places don't really provide things that are so late they're like when does the time start it'd be like midnight and they'd be like oh we can't find somebody and usually it was really very expensive Mm. but then when Anne came here I was like oh you know do you think this could work out and she was like let's build it. Let's build a community. I'll help you. And so she linked me up with this amazing service called Flamingo Interpreting Services, who are our sponsor for our untitled shows. And so they interpret all of our shows since the past three or four that we've done, which is amazing. And so this part is like really inviting this community to come with us because, you know, this is what I've learned by just meeting deaf folks and hard hearing folks is that there's a huge community there that want to be a part of these, you know, queer communities and are right here. So it's like, you know, they just need to be welcomed and included and know that they have access. And it is one of the best parts, I think, of having this show. So Anne is one of the interpreters that usually does the show. And it's, again, magical. One, I mean, I think sign language is one of the most beautiful languages I've ever scene yes and so when they perform not only is it beautiful but they are performers too it's a really amazing translation between like drag and music and sound and them and like oh let me let me just say as a spectator watching antifa and then there was a second person who was doing it and forgive me i missed their name but they were wearing a labyrinth shirt so i was like oh you're my person because i'm a hardcore labyrinth fan (laughs) and the, the two of them 
were both so fun to watch as well. I mean, the physicality and the exuberance and it's kind of almost like watching dance or something. And it really enhances the show in this really emotional way, even as someone who doesn't understand sign language. Like, I just loved it. It was so, so moving and really cool. Same. I love it. Now they're really expanding and more and more people are getting to work with them and having them. So, yeah, hope is to have it everywhere. Absolutely. On that note, we're going to take another quick break and we'll be right back. Black Phoenix Alchemy Lab is a specialty fragrance house currently celebrating its 20th year, now based in Philadelphia. Black Phoenix Alchemy Lab specializes in formulating body and household blends with a dark, romantic, gothic tone. And over the years, they've collaborated with so many of my heroes, including Neil Gaiman, Guillermo del Toro, and the Jim Henson Company. They continually return to inspirations drawn from history, mythology, literature, pop culture, and fine art, and they have a sister store called Twilight Alchemy Lab that creates oils blended and consecrated specifically for use in witchcraft and ritual magic. Keep up with their latest seasonal perfume releases by looking them up on social media. And Black Phoenix Alchemy Lab also now has a YouTube channel where they share scent reviews, announcements, and original video art. Perfume archives and customer reviews going back many years can be found at the fanrun bpal.org web forum. And of course, you can order all of Black Phoenix Alchemy Lab's decadent perfumes, oils, and more at blackphoenixalchemylab.com. Hi, Witch Wavers. I have exciting news. At long last, we have some new Witch Wave merch available for you now through TeePublic. We decided to go with TeePublic for our new Witch Wave merch because it is a print-on-demand site, which means you can get different variations of the Witch Wave logo printed on t-shirts, mugs, totes, stickers, magnets, notebooks, oh my gods, the sky's the limit. And the shirts come in different styles and fabrics and colors and are available in sizes small through 5XL, so you can order whatever you'll feel you're most magical in. So head on over to witchwavepodcast.com slash shop. Welcome back to The Witch Wave. Today I'm speaking with Untitled Queen. So... I'm realizing that in all of my excitement and exuberance to speak with you, I didn't ask you some really fundamental questions, which are when you are performing on stage, as much as you're shapeshifting your costumes, the way you paint seems to be pretty consistent. Your chosen name for yourself is consistent. So I'd love to hear how you've developed both of these things as part of your drag persona. Sure. You know, I'm not exactly sure how I came up with the name. You know, I definitely wanted something that referenced my art background. And it's kind of funny. I don't think I talked about this, but originally I entertained a different name. I wanted to do something about the painter, John William Waterhouse, who does all those amazing, you know, beautiful old sure. witch paintings. But nobody knows about that because I didn't keep it. But then 
I also was really interested in not having a name that was like a person's name. I was really interested in it being more like an art object or non-human-y. And so I knew it wasn't going to be Becky or, or like a pun. <laughs> name. So Right, right. Name. But when I came up with Untitled, I was like, oh, this is cool because it's just allowed me to be really open and really like, I didn't pigeonhole me to be any kind of drag for me. You could be a canvas, if you will. For sure. It's kind of funny because like of anything I do, like the least of is painting. But like, I think most <laughs> artists, people think I'm like, oh, you're a painter. I'm like, no, that's not me. But touche, touche. Yeah, but um, but it definitely is that, you know, it's a sort of blank slate that I can really form and do whatever I want to do. And I also knew no other person would come up with this name. So I was like, no double billing there, no confusion. <laughs> and mm. coming up with these names, again, another like thing about identity construction and deconstruction, like you choose all these elements and it's very empowering and coming up with a name is part of it. And I think what's really wild is that like, it was a word and a name that I called myself, but then it didn't become real until I was within a community, then began to be called by it and known by this. And so that's like when the word became an actual name is when I really joined Brooklyn Drag and I really was embraced by all these people that became my friends. So that's its own kind of magic. And so when people call me Untitled, that's a familial name to me. And yes. as far as my makeup, I, you know, I think it's interesting, like, you know, and now people really associate me with having this mostly like white face and like kind of graphic makeup. But I wasn't always the case, you know, I definitely played around. And I think earlier on, I would like mix it up and had more my skin tone. But I've just come to really enjoy it for lots of different reasons. I think for me, it really relates to my drawing practice. Drawing is probably like my biggest, I mean, I'm, I'm an interdisciplinary artist, but drawing is probably like my number one thing that I'm always doing. It's how I make sense of everything, ideas, world, words, yes. all that stuff. I love your drawings on titles. <gasps> Thank you very much. Very, very, very kind. Very it's just kind. a fact. I'm sorry. I'm gushing over here, but it's true. Very kind. So this face that I do, I think, really relates to this mix of between like 2D, 3D, and also like, it's sort of a projection surface. I can just kind of do anything I want. And I also think I'm really obsessed with contrast. So like, you know, it's a very kind of minimal look, but then the performance is really visible it really accentuates the way my face moves and the expressions and also i really like it because it really actually shows my face while at the same time it blocks it out and kind of flattens it at the same time like there's no contouring it really is just my actual nose is my actual like face structure and yeah. i really really like that part of it that kind of you know eliminates some of the reasons why it does I will also say that it reminds me of another art form that I'm a big fan of, which is Japanese buto. Yeah. yeah, which I only learned about, gosh, maybe with definitely within the last decade. And then I got pretty obsessed with it. And yeah. for those who aren't familiar, I think this was a post, if I'm not mistaken, World War II. Oh, gosh, I'm, I'm going to totally mess up the history. No, no, I think that you're correct. Those war art form basically like based on forms of, you know, dead and also like disintegrated bodies. Right. And it's super punk rock. If you watch Butoh performed, I'm not saying you do this untitled, but I'm just explaining that there's often faces of like grotesquerie. Sometimes people are like rolling their eyes in their back of their head. They're sometimes moving in really jagged ways. And it definitely brings to mind 
Like it's super gothy, but often the faces are painted white in this very ghostly way. It's just so moving and really arresting. And I think it's super magical. And so that's what your painting made me think of. And I just wasn't sure if there was a connection for you there that was intentional or not. Oh, totally. I mean, you know, I'm a product of a million inspirations, but I think Butoh is definitely one of those things. I've necessarily like been looking at, at so much Butoh now, but when I was in undergrad, my head blew off in a lot of things because I was going to high school in like a very small town in Connecticut. And like, I was one of two people that went to art school, like they didn't care about the arts there. Yeah. <laughs> but when I was an undergrad, like, wow, I was like, I'd never heard of performance art, I'd never seen all these things. And I remember seeing a film called Baraka. Mm-hmm. Sure. Which, yeah, amazing, you know, kind of wonders of the world and various things. And that's the first time I think I've ever seen Buto. And in that film, if I'm correct, there's no explanations. You're just seeing peaks into vignettes of all these different things. And you're seeing in this particular, I think it's called like a soul scream. It's the mouth like wide open and like as if it's screaming, but it's completely quiet. And I was like, wow, what is this? And then one of my first jobs after grad school was at a theater called Here Art Center. Oh, sure. Sure. And when I was there, one of the resident artists is Cave or Lime, L-E-I-M-A-Y, which is Jimena and Shige. They still do artwork there, but they're a Buto company out of Williamsburg. And I got to meet them and like I learned more about their work and I did a workshop. This is like 2010, 11. So I definitely got a lot of connection and kind of firsthand seeing a lot of like Buto artists during that time. How fabulous. So I want to, in our last moments together, really talk about a moment that we both brought up earlier, which is this horrific time of anti-trans, anti-drag, anti-gay legislature, and just the rhetoric that's happening right now. Mm -hmm. And you have this beautiful phrase, again, that's on your website, talking specifically about dive bars. You write, the dive bar is one of the most meaningful, radical sites of queer politics, intimacy, and joy. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yes, yes. And I just wanted to invite you to talk about how joy is resistance and what people can do right now if they are feeling disheartened or scared. Sure. I mean, it's very difficult. I think it's always difficult. It's always been hard. These things are always brewing and going on. You know, I would say I really feel that this kind of stuff happens when you make headway, you know, so I really feel like, you know, this kind of retroactive, really conservative vigor, you know, is really because we are as the most visible, the most present and the most represented that we've ever been as a community in America and American culture and American media than we have ever been. It doesn't make it any less unsettling or horrific. However, I think that's its reaction. The reaction is to try to maintain control of, again, colonial structures of binary thinking, binary ideology, patriarchy, all of these things, and whiteness. But I think like it's coming so strong because they understand that we are becoming more and more powerful. Our voices are really being heard. I just think about all the amazing resources and things that we have that I could never have imagined would have existed when I was growing up. Mm. I tell myself very fortunate. And I think, you know, here we are very spoiled by having so much queer nightlife and queer spaces that are 
for the most part, safe and also numerous that we can really, you know, go out one day and there's a rally, we can find other people and find our people really easily, you know, and having been in a small town, you know, I know how isolating and how difficult that can be. Sure. So, you know, I think finding comfort in some things, now there's so much of our stories are out there. That's what's always interesting to me, which is also kind of funny about these various bands, which is like, it's almost like laughable because they're so ridiculous. These things about like book bands makes me laugh because there's no such thing in a digital age and place now as a book band. I'm like, mm. there's no way kids won't have access to having books. Literally, they can just go on Kindle, Amazon and like read whatever the hell they want. Now we have so many more queer writers, queer actors, queer producers, you know, our movies, our stories, you know, are everywhere. And yes. Like even in the last year alone, theater and in movies and in art and in our communities, it's not an embarrassment of riches. It's like, you know, we're just trying to get there, but we had two shows. It was like, you know, I had Queer as Folk and then we had Will and Grace. And like, that was yeah. the lexicon of like, how to understand, you know, and I'm watching basically white dominated cis gay people interact. And a lot of times straight people pretending to be queer on screen well, too. <laughs> not, not, not a little, like almost a majority, right? right and like right. realizing I think our strides and how much more we have to go, I think is a, that's how we continue to survive. And queer community and, and queer gathering is a lesson that is passed down to us from our queer ancestors. And I think not only registering like how difficult things are and what we can do, but also realizing the beautiful things. And that's why, you know, I'm an artist. That's why like we make things that people can connect to their lives and tell the stories that are both beautiful and sad. Art as an outlet is, you know, the thing that helps me live. And so hopefully I think other people could find that creativity, but then also connect with other people that are putting those stories out there, doing that for themselves in this, in these dark times. Mm. So, so gorgeous. Untitled, I know that people are going to want to see your artwork. They're going to want to see you and your collaborators perform. What is the best way that people can connect with you? Untitled Queen, one word on Instagram is a really good place to find me where I post pretty often and do a lot of live updates. I also have my website, which is my given name, MatthewDeLeon.com. I had an untitled one, but I'm like, this is paying too much for two domains. I was like, <laughs> let's just keep it one together. There's no separation between me and my artwork. And for me, drag is not a persona, drag is myself. You know, my untitled is, is who I am. Um, it's not a put on, it's not like a character, it's, it's who I am. So yeah, you know, please find me there. DM me, write me, come to see a show, invite me to your place to come perform. I love traveling to perform and meeting other queer communities. It's one of my favorite things. So yes. How wonderful. Well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to speak with me and to share your magic in all the different forms that it takes. Untitled, what a gift you are and what a delight this conversation was. Thank you so much. Oh my gosh, I had the best time. Thank you so much for having me. That went by so quick. Really wonderful getting to chat about all this. Thank you. That's it for the show. Thank you again to Untitled Queen for sharing her shape-shifting art magic with me. Do you have questions, feedback, need some witchly advice, or just want to share something magical that happened to you recently? Drop us an email at witchwavepodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you, and you just might make it on the Witchwire. The Witchwave is a phantasmophile production written and produced by me, Pam Grossman. 
This episode was recorded and edited by Josh Wilcox and myself. Our theme music is the song Hand and Eye by Lycanthia. Our new Witchwave logo was designed by Thunderwing. Special thanks go to Matt Freeman, Laura Amtal, and Cece Pascal. You can check out information about this and other episodes on our website and now buy Witchwave merch at witchwavepodcast.com. Please subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app and give us lots and lots of sparkly stars. It really, truly makes a difference and helps other people find the show. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at WitchWavePod, and you can check out my witch emoji for iPhone by going to witchemoji.com or downloading it in the App Store. Please consider ordering my book, Witchcraft, and or picking up my book, Waking the Witch, which are both available everywhere now. And if you want more WitchWave or you would just like to support the show, please join us over on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash witchwave. Thank you so much for listening. Witches are the future. I'll catch you next time on The Witch Wave.